morning. Welcome to Rising. We have another fantastic show for you all today. And of course, Brianna Joy Gray is back with us. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. It's good to be back. What is on our agenda today? Well, Craig Pasta-Gerdula will be joining us later to break down the aftermath of leftist Lula da Silva's victory over right-wing Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. Plus, we'll talk midterms with our rising panelists, Sabrina Slavati and Michael LaRosa. But first, the San Francisco District Attorney has announced a slew of charges against Paul Pelosi's alleged attacker, David Papape, including residential burglary, assault with a deadly weapon, elder abuse, false imprisonment of an elder, threats to a public official and their family, and attempted murder. If convicted, DePape will face between 13 years and life in prison. Well, according to interview filings made public by the Justice Department yesterday, DePape told investigators he was fighting against tyranny without surrender and that he broke through a glass door in the Pelosi's home last week with the intention of holding Nancy Pelosi hostage. DePape also said that in order to hold her accountable as the, quote, leader of the pack of lies told by the Democratic Party, he would hold her hostage until she told the truth and then break her kneecaps if she lied. DePape also later explained that by breaking her kneecaps, she would then have to be wheeled into Congress. It's all pretty horrifying. This would show other members purportedly of Congress that there were consequences for their actions. Now, as far as the night's timeline goes, DePape has told police, and we've been able to see a copy of that report, so this is what he told the police he was doing. After the break-in, he woke up a sleeping Paul Pelosi, told him Nancy was not home, and then at some point, Mr. Pelosi was able to call 911. DePape began to hit Pelosi with the same hammer he had used to break in after officers had already arrived on the scene, and DePape said the assault served as Pelosi's punishment for alerting the authorities in the first place. Um, all pretty horrifying stuff. I mean, this is a, it's a house break-in, um, essentially, and uh, we wish Paul Pelosi speedy recovery. Um, it's good that he was able to call the police at all. This could have been far, this was bad. It could have been far worse. Um, and uh, frankly, the, the behavior of uh, a lot of right-wing media figures on this topic has just been abysmal over the last few days. Um, look, yes, we didn't know exactly what had happened. How did he get in? We have questions about what is the kind of security situation at the Pelosi House. There was some early confusion in the report. But frankly, there is always confusion mm. in what we hear in, in high-profile crime incidents, there's always some, wait, how many people was it involved? Who were they? What? Like, mm -hmm. that always happens. Mm -hmm. And you just have to, like, shut your mouth for 48 hours, and then you'll know. Yeah. And so we know there was no third person that was like, well, who opened the door? Pelosi opened the door. Mm -hmm. how, how did that? And also, we can t plainly see from even a very cursory, like, 30-second Googling of who this guy is, yeah. that he is, frankly, it, it, it is fine to say he is someone with severe mental health issues who, who has delusions and paranoia and thinks, uh, things that, thinks there are creatures that aren't there, are there and out to get him. This is, a, so this is a profile of a mentally harmed man who broke in and did this. And we don't, and there were, I mean, I don't even want to give any credence to them, but there were all these, oh, was it, did he invite them in? Was it some kind of hookup or something? Festering in some of the mm. extremist swamps that there yeah. was no reason whatsoever to think any of that. Well, there's a couple of thing, points to that. One is, even if it had been a hookup, even, even assuming the most kind of bizarre factual pattern that people were projecting onto the situation when there was imperfect knowledge earlier, 
I would still argue that it's a very bad thing to have someone break, you know, bash your head in with a ha hammer and that there should have been a level of sympathy, just human sympathy for someone who is not themselves a political mm -hmm. actor, is ultimately a civilian and all of this being attacked in that way that wasn't forthcoming. Moreover, of course, like most people who commit a crime of this nature have are not what I would call uh, m mentally all together. But there has been, I think, an effort to downplay the political nature of this insofar as I saw some commentators on Fox News discussing this as a crime issue, the implication being that because Democrats are quote unquote soft on crime, that somehow Nancy Pelosi brought this on herself or that this was a, a kind of a a, a crime that happened in, the, in a normal, randomized sense that violent crime happens, when of course it was not. The Pelosi's were targeted precisely because, as we saw in the statement that you just read, precisely because of her role politically as the head of the, the, the Democratic caucus. So it, does, it, it, was, it was an odd move. We've talked on this show a lot about how we have to be very sensitive about um, blaming figures for the acts of random mm -hmm. crazy people out in the world, and that I think that's completely true. At the same time, I don't think it's fair to not describe this as a politically motivated event when it obviously is. You can do that, I think, without attributing direct blame to any one figure, even a party. I mean, it, it's there's certainly at least a veneer of a political agenda to this. He was he was describing a a political rationale he is also very crazy that is kind of that is a, a thing we have seen in the past with you know very uh, i would put you know jared lee uh, lofner the gabby giffords mm -hmm. shooter was it was a political attack mm -hmm. and the Supreme he Court sort attack. of had an yeah. agenda but it was actually not but he was very crazy and it was it was not because he saw Sarah Palin, you know, putting a, a, making a target on Gabby Giffords district or something like that. The guy who shot Reagan was trying to date Jodie Foster. I mean, there's a, there's a mix of crazy and then some political interest that intersects for some people. Um, but look, I hear your point. Obviously, we should turn down the ratchet down the extreme and alarming political rhetoric just going on in general because this is not a healthy way for society to comport itself, and it's tearing us apart and it's making us very angry at each other and very polarized. I would say that independent of any even of, of any kind of concern about new political virus, some wave of political violence or something. I don't really see, I don't think there's a wave of political violence happening, but this is very bad stuff and, and people should tone it down. And people, including the right, when they want to make criticism of the mainstream media for getting things wrong all the time, which I agree, the mainstream media does get things wrong all the time, but you have to be careful. <laughs> the, yeah. the, 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 the kind of pr uh, provocative or media accountability holding people like the just asking questions crowd did not equip themselves very well the last few days. Yeah, and moreover, I do think that there have been comments by uh, Carrie Lake um, that were joke. You know, she made a joke about the Nancy Pol the, the Paul Pelosi yeah. attack. I think it was what uh, Donald Trump Jr. who posted a picture of underwear and a hammer and, and yeah. implied that that would be a funny Halloween costume. I do think it is unfair to say generalized Republican rhetoric caused this crazy person to do what they did. But after the fact of the attack, I think individuals have to be responsible for the messaging that they're they putting just, out What would the they say well. if, a, if a Republican figure? I mean, look, Brett well, Kavanaugh, when his house was yeah. visited, I said, this is horrible. This is very, we should be alarmed about this. Would, it, would anyone have tolerated Democrats making fun of that? No, they would jump all over them for that. Well, you know, I think if someone hit uh, Brett Kavanaugh in the head with a hammer, 
and a Democrat subsequently, you know, if Cory Bu Cory Bush then said, "LOL, I'm going to dress as bloody head Greg." Uh, Brett Kavanaugh for Halloween, sure, certainly some people would think it was okay. I don't know that, that those people would be right. Yeah. <laughs> you know what they I mean? They would not be right. So this is where we are. They would not be right. Yeah. All right, my radar is next. Stay tuned for that. Robbie, what is on your radar today? Well, Brianna, earlier this year, the existence of something called the Disinformation Governance Board was revealed to the world for the first time. This board was a creation of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and intended to advise other government agencies on strategies for identifying and countering harmful misinformation that might relate to national security issues. Well, critics all across the political spectrum found this board to be Orwellian and creepy, and almost no one was reassured by the board's director, Nina Jankowicz, a so-called misinformation expert with a long history of herself falling for bad online information, like the idea that the Hunter Biden lap story, laptop story was a fake Russian plot. Thankfully, the government shuttered the disinformation board in what appeared to be a rare example of the national intelligence sector actually listening to the public. Well, of course, that was too good to be true. We knew it would be. The disinformation board, still dead, but the federal government, fortunately not, vis-a-vis -vis this national security apparatus, absolutely committed still to policing what it dubiously refers to as misinformation. And in fact, these efforts are potentially crossing legal and constitutional lines, and government agents begin to purge misinformation in ways that clearly impugn First Amendment principles. Remember that the U.S. Constitution prohibits the government from restricting speech, even speech that is uncomfortable or provocative or wrong, except in a few very exceptional Supreme Court-recognized circumstances. But despite the robust protections of the First Amendment, the federal government is making every effort to pressure social media companies into punishing speech. Examples of this are everywhere, and speech relating to COVID-19 is especially jeopardized. Remember the federal government's efforts to push social media companies to censor discussions of the lab leak theory? Well, more examples now come to us courtesy of excellent reporting by Lee Fong and Ken Klippenstein of The Intercept, who obtained leaked internal documents from DHS that shed additional light on the lengths to which Homeland Security will go in order to police legitimate speech. Now, according to The Intercept, Facebook maintains a special portal for law enforcement to make requests that content be removed from the platform. Indeed, the portal exists here. They were, we were able to find it and requires law enforcement credentials to access it. Now, there are certainly kinds of content I can imagine where it would make sense for law enforcement to be able to put in such a request. How about threats of violence or terrorist activity, for instance? National security agents should be focused on policing those things, terrorism and actual violence. That's their purpose. The national security state, however, is vastly outgrowing and exceeding its original mandate and is now treading in some very murky waters. According to The Intercept, the FBI's Laura Demlo briefed a cybersecurity agency on the spread of misinformation, warning that, quote, we need a media infrastructure that is held accountable. Excuse me? Another DHS report obtained by The Intercept explained that its coming priorities are preventing, quote, inaccurate information on a wide range of topics, including, quote, the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, and the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines, racial justice, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the nature of U.S. support to Ukraine. 
Well, these are policy subjects on which Americans and their elected leaders possess a range of views and on which the mainstream media and the U.S. government have often been the very worst spreaders of inaccurate information. Just think how frequently the consensus has shifted on COVID topics, from the origins of the pandemic to the efficacy of mitigation efforts to the likely modes of spread. What does it mean to spread inaccurate information about the U.S.'s support for Ukraine? Does Homeland Security aim to criminalize attempts to cast aspersions on the U.S.'s continued funding of the war effort? Look, this should be obvious, but not all conversations come down to information and misinformation. Sometimes some people on both sides of a debate are extremely well-informed, have credible information, simply disagree about the best way to handle a problem. I think that happens on our show all the time. Sometimes people on both sides of debate are equally misinformed, <laughs> independent of whatever conclusions they're drawing. Maybe that happens every now and then, too. <laughs> Sometimes one person is wrong and the other person, a scientist, a professor, or otherwise expert, has far more technical knowledge, but for one reason or another, supports a bad policy. Foreign policy is one area of policy where this third scenario comes up a lot. Some of the most well-informed national security experts in government and in the media have historically been the most hawkish, the most in favor of disastrous foreign adventurism in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, in Afghanistan. These people are the ones dabbling in counter-misinformation? How can we trust them? Of course we can't. We'd be fools to do so. And that's why it's so concerning that this entire apparatus is speeding up, is increasing its efforts to regulate, to censor, to punish what you're allowed to talk about online. So it was excellent reporting from your former colleagues at The Intercept. Yeah, um, absolutely. Really good stuff. And, uh, and, and provides more real concrete evidence of a phenomenon that we all know is happening, that we've learned more about. That um, and I've started saying this to you know conservatives who are very worried about social media censorship and obviously many on the left are as well, but the disproportionate focus has been on the platforms themselves. Like, look at all the emails and messages, and uh, the, the Cato Institute has a great paper on this recently, calling it jawboning. That's their term for it. Um, this is an old legal term. You might know it, it was used in some other context. They're using it for this. The jawboning is the government. Um, pushing an act, uh, a private actor or a platform like Twitter, Facebook, etc., to, to restrict speech. Obviously, they, they wouldn't be able to pass a law saying they could do that because the First Amendment prohibits it. So they just kind of go, we'd yeah. really like if you took this down. Yeah. And uh, there's an upcoming congressional committee hearing on you know, some antitrust measure relating to yeah. you. It would really suck for you if we were mad at you by the time that rolled around. So what are you doing about that content? Yeah. And this is happening all the time on uh, on election stuff, yes, but then also on COVID stuff, national security, Ukraine. They're going to Ukraine-related misinformation. <laughs> oh, boy, oh boy. Are you going to survive, Brianna? The Ukraine-related misinformation okay. purge on Twitter. I, I don't think so, and I might have already succumbed to it. I mean, I've spoken to it about it on the show that a lot of people, you know, across the political spectrum, but obviously I, I speak to a lot of leftists who've noted that at a certain point in the last year and a half or so, they have had a, a block, a limitation, a, a soft ban, or whatever is going on with their followers growth. It's their followers say that they don't see their tweets anymore uh, in the timeline. Mm -hmm. And when the story uh, broke yesterday, a lot of folks said, oh, this, this feels familiar to me. Maybe I've been caught up in one of these misinformation um, purges or, or suppressions. And it's very, very concerning. And I do also think this puts some so it raises some questions about how much of this is structural mm -hmm. um, and how much someone like Elon Musk, even with the best intentions, is actually going to be able to push back against both this mm -hmm. and the fact that so much is what is driving this policy, if not the government going nudge, 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 is the fact that these 
websites are set up to earn money through advertising. And they're very beholden to what the advertisers want. Well, that's why I'm very cautiously optimistic about the Elon takeover. I'm hoping he can just shed more information so we can better understand how the circumstance that you found yourself in, that some other people I know from Twitter found themselves in, where their follower gro growth stops abruptly and, and artificially. Um, I, right, I would love if he <laughs> made that more apparent. He said he wants to charge people for blue checks. People are like, oh, that's insane. I would never pay. Well, I would pay if it meant I was never Ever put in the category of being shadow that's banned? I, like, what other things does it does it protect you from this? I mean, really, no one should be put in that well, no one, that's circumstance. The thing. You but, shouldn't have to be paid. You yeah. know, have to, shouldn't have to pay for like equal access to the app and equal treatment on yeah. the app. I will say that the, the 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 blue check discourse is kind of hilarious. I think a lot of blue checks, like myself, I already do pay for Twitter Blue because I have a podcast that allows me to put clips longer than two minutes and twenty seconds on the internet. So. I, what's confusing is there are services that Twitter can provide above and beyond the basic service mm -hmm. that I think people would be willing to pay for. It's weird to try to retrofit something that people already have and extract money from them for it. You know, people have obviously been talking about uh, how not profitable Twitter has been in the past and how perhaps this wasn't the wisest business decision and that this kind of um, charging scheme might ultimately be the death knell of the app. But honestly, it's because Twitter is so important that I don't think that's going to happen. And it is why there is all of this attempt at interference from the government. They actually know that this is one of the most significant public forums in the country. Maybe only 3% of people are on Twitter, but it has a much bigger radius in terms of yeah, its effect on Significant not because, not because the masses use it so right. much, but because of the a unique importance, fondness for yeah. the platform among the media yeah. and yeah, media and government officials, yeah. and 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 that's why. And and frankly, I think Elon knows that. I mean, if he bought this hoping to make a ton of money, he'd be very foolish. Right. But I don't think he's very foolish. He's mm -hmm. a savvy businessman. I think he wants to have some. I, he, he what he said is he wants to write improve this public this forum for public officials and intellectuals that it's been too tilted or badly run in the past and wants to change some things about it. Might disagree with some of those changes. We might like them. We kind of have to wait and see. Yeah. But uh, it's an interesting shakeup. Yeah. And I almost say this. Even if I, I wonder if most of this is structural and Elon won't be able to do much to change it, I do think that Elon is more likely than other types of CEOs to blow the whistle and expose the ways mm -hmm. in which he's being constrained. And that can make for some good reporting and some much needed transparency. Well, I just keep seeing him now respond to people, mostly like right wing people who like keep tagging him like, what, what about this piece of content? I don't like <laughs> the, the content moderation decision cannot be solved by personally tagging Elon Musk. Like, that's not a Elon. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have more on this story tomorrow, Lee Fong, the author of that great intercept piece on what DHS is doing, will be joining us to expand on it. So you'll want to catch that. And then we'll have more rising today right after this. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and his Democratic opponent Stacey Abrams clashed in their second and final gubernatorial debate on Sunday before next week's midterms over issues like abortion, voting rights, and crime, but both candidates agreed to accept uh, next week's election results, whatever they might be. On abortion, according to The Hill, Abrams said Kemp, quote, refuses to defend us, and yet he defended Herschel Walker, saying that he didn't want to be involved in the personal life of his running mate, but he doesn't mind being involved in the personal lives and the personal medical choices of women in Georgia, end quote. Republican candidate Herschel Walker has had accusations of paying for women's abortions in the past made against him while campaigning as fiercely anti-abortion rights. Yeah, I mean, we discussed this. 
as much as hypocrisy is extremely irritating and can launch a lot of retweets, I don't think it actually affects people who are voting blue or red on the condition of trying to get control or maintain control of the Senate. That's it's not it. right. It's not quite. It, it's not quite hypocrisy. It, like it is, but he said he's changed his mind. I mean, he's also denied that a lot of these things took place, which I. Do you I, think that Herschel Walker has changed his but, mind, that he's had a come-to-Jesus moment? And he, on one hand, he now believes that abortion is murder such that there should, I mean, that the, he has personally advocated for a federal ban on abortion, but members of the party that people are voting to put into power have advocated for a federal ban on abortion I think he had no political services. instincts previously and has been told these are the political instincts he yeah, should have. Yeah, I, I right? 100%. So it's, it's, it's <laughs> I, I think he's not a man of conviction. Right. He's not a man of conviction. He's there to pull the lever, which is very frustrating to people who have been on the receiving end of all the moralizing around abortion. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I find that conversation to be exhausting because people are going to vote how they're going to vote. Right. I, I wish we weren't in this country. So I revised my predictions a little bit yeah. um, since uh, since last last week. I said I thought we were going to end up with another 50-50 Senate. Mm-hmm. I think Nevada will flip. Uh, Laxalt will win, so that's going to go Republican. Interesting. But I was, Why? Uh, so that one, uh, they, that is the candidate, that is the Republican candidate who is of the Senate candidates who is least out there, mm-hmm. who is kind of normal. And uh, the polling has been very, very, very close there. Mm. So that one I think will flip. Pennsylvania. Up until last week, I was saying I think Fetterman would eke it out. I have changed that prediction. Well, the polls have suggested that the debate didn't actually hurt Fetterman very much. Yeah, we'll see. Fine. Maybe it's it's anecdotal. I I can't can't see it. (laughs) Rather, I can't unsee what I saw. And that all has the effect of being, I think, the probably this race. We haven't talked about this this much, but the Herschel uh, Walker-Raphael Warnock race could very well go to a runoff because mm-hmm. there is a third-party candidate, the Libertarian candidate, my guy, <laughs> the Libertarian <laughs> voter. If you don't know, I only mention it every 30 <laughs> seconds on the show. Um, so it, I think it could very likely go to a runoff. So if neither candidate gets 50%, it goes to a runoff. That seems like something that could very re- – that's probably the most likely thing and to happen. And who do you think that will advantage? Well, then I don't know. Then I think maybe it depends on – if the Republicans have already take, taken the Senate because they won Nevada and Pennsylvania, and now so that would give that put them to 51, maybe the Democrats are demoralized, and nationally they don't put a lot of money into maybe this race Republicans to try to win it. Maybe the Republicans don't feel it's as necessary to come out. Maybe. So I ju- I'm saying I don't know. Yeah. I, I truly don't know what happens in a runoff situation. I think Democrats are going to be pretty depressed. Um, I won't ask you what you Senate, would do if you were a Georgia Libertarian voter, Robbie. I would vote for the Libertarian. Oh, I would vote for the Libertarian. Absolutely. No, no, no. Once at post-runoff. Oh, post-runoff? Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we won't go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, elsewhere in the Peach State, Senator Raphael Warnock leads Herschel Walker by just three points in a New York Times-Siena College poll released Monday. Approximately 49% of the likely Georgia voters support Warnock, while 46% support Walker. Former President Barack Obama gave a speech in Georgia when campaigning for Warnock a few days ago, during part of which he seemingly took digs at Walker. Let's take a clip, look at a clip of that. I am not big on poking into people's private lives. I've always felt that that stuff is between a candidate and their family. But you know what's not between them and their family are issues of character. Being in the habit of not telling the truth. Being in the habit of saying one thing and doing another. Being in the habit of having certain rules for you and your important friends. And other rules for everybody else. 
That says something about the kind of leader you're going to be. And if a candidate's main qualification is that he's going to be loyal to Donald Trump, it means that he's not really going to be thinking about you and your needs. And you deserve better. Georgia deserves better. You deserve somebody who's independent and who's going to go work every day and fight for you. Somebody like Reverend Raphael Warnock. I admit I didn't fully recognize or realize just how much better Obama is <laughs> effectively as a communicator and campaigner. Yep. When, when he was a president, I didn't understand it. I guess I didn't have so many political memories from before that. Mm -hmm. He became president while I was in college. I, I watched the Kerry Bush debates, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he's, look, he's just really effective at what he does. Because yeah. uh, what he picks up on there isn't this just the bland hypocrisy point. Oh, he, he said he's against abortions, but he paid for abortions. He picks up on this idea that Herschel Walker's politics are being motivated by something that's not intrinsic. It's being motivated by basically the puppeteering of Donald Trump. And even if you like Donald Trump, what that means is that he's not being responsive to his constituents, that he's beholden to a political hierarchy. And the whole value of Trump, the whole value of Obama, the whole value of Bernie Sanders, is that these characters style themselves as independent and separate and apart from their party and making decisions that were for the people they represented directly. I think that's a very smart take he has there. Why the Democrats haven't been using Barack Obama better? I have all the criticism in the world of him substantively, mind you. But as a uh, as an orator, why they haven't been using him for messaging advice before this, I have no idea. Hey, well, it was nice of him to fit this in between his Pod Save America appearances. <laughs> Planning his Netflix show, probably uh, writing his next book, doing a podcast with Bruce Springsteen, jet skiing with uh, Richard Branson and all of the like. Yeah. It's a lifestyle. It definitely is a lifestyle. Well, we'll have to see. Um, yeah, I, so uh, Brian Kemp is obviously pulling ahead of Stacey Abrams, is definitely the favorite to win this race. I absolutely expect him to do so. Um, what does Stacey Abrams' future hold after this? Like, how long can she continue to be this kind of heroic figure for voting rights issue when, I'm sorry, she cannot win. She does not win elections. And now we've had reporting. It was very solid reporting, not from like, it wasn't like a, a right wing kind of digging dirt up on her thing, but from a very respectable journalist. We, I encourage everyone to watch it. The yes. segment from last week is very interesting about how her voting rights organization spends its money and in a way that was reminiscent of how the Black Lives Matter movement has spent its money, not actually on legitimate activism or to help people in need, but as kind of personal glorification or even in some ways financial uh, kickbacks to top yeah. loyalists. I mean, we'll see what explanations end up coming out. But yeah, the story that we were, you know, we, we had the reporter who broke it on uh, last week, and I'll be talking to her on Thursday's episode of my own podcast as well. $25 million raised, $9.4 million spent on litigating these election law cases uh, that experts from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and others who are familiar with these kind of cases say shouldn't have cost more than a it should have cost less than $1 million, even under the worst circumstances, and the cases weren't actually effective. Most of it got thrown out at the summary judgment stage. She should chalk it up to Biden inflation. Yeah, that's what cases used to cost, but in this economy? <laughs> well, even though the worst part of it is that her longtime friend, campaign manager, is a partner at that firm and founding partner at right. that firm, and so the optics of it are very bad. So one thing you can say about Stacey Abrams is that she's very good at raising money, but we'll see how long that lasts if a scandal like this gets traction in the same yeah. way that the Black Lives Matter scandal well, did. She's just a back-to-back -back loser in this race. Yeah. I don't know what her future holds. Yeah. 
Our parent company, NextStar, will have live election coverage of the 2022 midterms. November 8th, News Nation will be broadcasting live starting at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. They're partnering with Decision Desk HQ to call the big races, and they'll also have journalists from across the country, including from the Hill. And of course, we'll have post-election coverage for you right here on Rising. President Biden suggested last night that his administration might implement a new windfall tax on oil and gas companies. Let's watch. I think they have a responsibility to act in the interest of their consumers, their community, and their country. To invest in America by increasing production and refining capacity, because they've ha they don't want to do that. They, they have the opportunity to do that. Lowering prices for consumers at the pump. You know, if they don't, they're going to pay a higher tax on their excess profits and face other restrictions. My team will work with Congress to look at these, op these options that are available to us and others. It's time for these companies to stop war profiteering, meet their responsibilities to this country, and give the American people a break and still do very well. In this brief address, as we heard, Biden blasted big oil for war profiteering and withholding domestic production, even as they get rich off of record profits. Biden warned these companies that if they don't direct more of their huge profits to lowering the price at the pump for consumers, there could be a price to pay. Now, as some background, the House Democrats passed a bill earlier this year to do exactly this. Uh, Katie Porter, a California representative, has been leading the charge on these kind of issues. She's made a statement at the time saying, I'm a proud capitalist, and what we're experiencing with fuel prices is the result of a broken market. Um, uh, big oil executives are bragging to shareholders about price gouging families at the pump. They're purposefully keeping supply low to earn record profits, squeezing families and our entire economy in the process. Uh, I'm glad my House colleagues agree. And just a couple of numbers on this. Um, with that statement, uh, the industry was sitting on more than 9,000 approved but unused drilling permits on 13.9 million acres of U.S. public lands uh, and have seen some of the biggest companies, Shell being one of them, had a record-breaking $9.1 billion in quarterly profit, an amount nearly triple their $3.2 billion they had earned the year before. So the accusations of price gouging are not coming out of nowhere. Some of the richest companies in the world have tripled their profit at the same time that Americans are struggling to get back and forth to work. Do you think this is a good policy uh, decision here? This isn't the way I would handle the policy, but let's get rid of all their subsidies then. Let's get the massive uh, subsidies that the U.S. government gives to oil and gas companies. Yeah, get rid of them. And then they can use some of these excess profits they have to, uh, to, to pick up the slack for, for all the favorable treatment they give with the government. I generally think that's a better way. To, that rather than confiscate the wealth of companies after they earn it. And this seems to be the way m many Democrats, or in particular the Biden administration, seems to want to do. But yeah, we're going to give industries, sectors of the economy, all these breaks, all these advantages, all this help. Then we're just going to hope, and then we're going to do that. I mean, the, the airline industry was the same thing. Here's all this stuff we're going to give you. And then, right, you're not going to lay off, off the pilots, right? You're going to keep everything running smoothly. Yeah. And then the industries responding to just kind of various business forces say, no, we're going to Take all that, thank you, and then we're going to do whatever we we're going to do anyway. So we should just stop giving them those benefits and those and those and those rewards and picking in, uh, w winners and losers and all that sort of. So that's how I would handle it. You're yeah. right. I t look, I take the leftist point that 
it's not all, all the competition out there is not all fair. Uh, some of the, and in large part, in some many cases, because of what the government's policy, own policies have been. So I would do that. Yeah, I, I'm not sure why they take one approach or not the other. Um, it does seem like they're, you know, it's fossil fuels received $5.9 trillion in subsidies in 2020. Yeah. So it certainly seems like there were enough subsidies to kind of have yeah. the same effect for foreign back end. It was when he first started. Um, Raising this, I thought, well, maybe the subsidies subsidies aren't as big as the profits. They are vast. But they are they are <laughs> they're vast. apparently vast. So it, it's not. I'm you know we should look into more mm-hmm. uh, look more into rather what the rationale is by taking uh, of taking this approach rather than a different approach. But it seems like this particular plan, in the absence of a Republican backed plan to actually mm-hmm. address the subsidies, it will be a hard one to argue against. And given that it has been on the table for so long, I'm a little curious why why uh, why Joe Biden hasn't banged this drum earlier. Well, I will say, I mean, I'm listening to his remarks there, and he says he thinks those companies have a responsibility to bring down their gas prices. Well, does does the U.S. government have a responsibility to help make gas more affordable people? It it falls to these companies that are, let's take it from the leftist perspective. No, they're greedy capitalists just trying to make money, and I'm somehow expecting them to behave differently. But my own administration's policies are ensuring that gas prices are going to remain high for all the, this. Well, what policies? Well, all the screwing up with, uh, with the, I mean, then he's accusing them of war profiteering. Why is there a war going on? Because we're sending millions and millions and well, millions of well, dollars well, to Ukraine. Well, sure, but I, I, I do think those are a little bit mi- mixed issues here. The idea is there, Biden has tried to implement other policies. To his credit, they don't go far enough, and they're not, mm-hmm. I think that he has oversold them to the American people, given how marginal they are. But he has tried to do things like open up strategic oil reserves, et cetera, to try to bring down the prices at the pump. What about the pipelines, the drilling, the better relations with he, he, Venezuela, up, Saudi Arabia? He he's done up, some of those yeah, things. Yeah, he's, he's done those things. And again, as a leftist, I don't like a lot of those things, but he definitely has been prioritizing He's done more than you want, to, not as much as many to bring, people would want. To bring down the prices. But this, this one, I think, is good for political reasons, because at the end of the day, it is a small number of companies that have um, this uh, kind of this this control that antitrust is supposed to be addressing, this monopoly control and being able to raise prices. There were these huge gaps between the price of oil by barrel and the price of oil at the pump. And everyone could see it with their own eyes. So whereas I think some of the price gouging arguments seem kind of socialistic and woo-woo to some people in other contexts, this was one that was square on the money. So we'll see if it's too late. But you, <laughs> but, but you yeah, do well, understand like the backwardness of saying, we're going to we're going to subsidize and assist and favor your industry to the tune of trillions of dollars, yeah. and then later we're going to be upset when you make too much money. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, have, I have no issue with that at all. I mean, look, I, I do think that some of the subsidy, I think some of the money goes to doing things like financing drilling pr- projects mm-hmm. and allowing them to do the infrastructural things that allow them to access the fuel they that they need. They can get a loan need. like everybody else. How about that? <laughs> All right, you heard it here first from, from Robbie Suave. Meanwhile, President Biden has been touting his record on gas, claiming that he's helped bring prices down from what he says averaged $5 a gallon when he took office. But fact checkers have debunked this claim. Gas prices hovered at two thirty nine per gallon when he took office, oh. and it's averaging three seventy six today. The good old days. Yeah, I, 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 I had mixed feelings about this. Obviously, I'm sure the Biden administration was picking some number that was true in some place, and the people who are fact checking this, I think it's a little bit of like a, of a gotcha. Did the Facebook fact checkers spring into action? <laughs> disinformation alert. Everyone stop what you're doing. There is disinformation. Right. I mean, like, the point, the point is that Biden the Homeland Security wrong. must know. We, we must alert. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm sorry. No, but I, think, I think that people who are pushing back against Biden's numbers are right insofar as 
there is always a number that an administration could point to to tell you that everything is fine. And no one ever wants to hear it mm -hmm. because the base level of normalcy in America is that people aren't feeling fine. Even if the, the arc is going a little bit in the right direction at one point or another, it, it's all a drop in the bucket. So I think that any time an administration says, well, why aren't you patting me on the back for doing a good enough job? They're going to sound bad. And it's not because the numbers are bad on the pump. It's because the economy is bad and people have been suffering, especially through the pandemic, but honestly, for a long time before that. Well, we'll have more rising right after these messages. Stay tuned. Brazilians chose Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva as their president this Sunday, marking a resurrection for the leftist after he was jailed for alleged corruption following his 2003 to 2010 two-term stint in office. Brazil's current president, Jair Bolsonaro, is expected to publicly address the election outcome today. According to a minister in his cabinet, the lame duck leader has yet to make any kind of public comment on his loss. However, leading up to the election, Bolsonaro made multiple comments casting doubt on the integrity of Brazil's electoral system. Joining us now to discuss is co-host of the AM Wake Up and co-host of the Convo Couch, Craig Pastajardula. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. So help us understand, people are probably making some parallels between Bolsonaro's behavior here and uh, the way that Donald Trump behaved at the end of uh, the 2020 election. Is that a fair comparison? Well, I mean, it's a fair comparison to say that some of the rhetoric is the same. I think the situation is totally different. Um, I think it was a little bit more justified uh, for Donald Trump because the system had changed so much due to COVID protocols. But Bolsonaro had won under the same system in 2018. So even though he can make some criticism about the system being a direct recorded electronical device system, meaning there's no paper ballots and no paper ballot trail. Yeah, you could do that. But once again, different situation. And he has not actually, right, these were maybe comments before the election, right, that he was griping about. He's not said anything to indicate, is, do you believe that he's going to do something to indicate that he doesn't accept the results? No, I, I firmly believe he's going to come out and give a speech and he's going to accept the results uh, and move on. It, it was a tough race. It was a lot closer than a lot of people had expected. I myself definitely thought there would be a second round and I thought Bolsonaro would perform well. But I didn't think he performed this well to get within two points of Lula. So I think it's it's probably going to be a little bit tough for him and he's going to probably he probably took the last day or so soda you know, digest mm -hmm. it. But I, I, I assume, and I could be wrong, but I assume he's going to come forth and accept the results today. Yeah, I saw that, you know, the night of the election, he didn't come out and make any remarks, that people were watching his home and the lights kind of went out signaling that he just wasn't going to come out and say anything that evening. And it reminded me actually of the night uh, in 2016 when Hillary Clinton was very delayed coming out and making any kind of remark at that, at that point as well, which people took to be a sour gravestone, but ultimately resulted in a concession and kind of a normal um, transfer of power. Um, were you surprised at all by the speed with which the Biden administration came out congratulating uh, De Silva? No, not at all. It, 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 it was very clear for quite some time that the Biden administration was definitely uh, rooting for Lula in the situation. So uh, it was not a surprise whatsoever when they came out almost immediately. But I mean, that's the uh, the the great thing about the Brazil election is that you get results that night, just like in a lot of other uh, Central and South American countries. Mm. Mm. And can you, 
just for some more added context, explain how significant this win is. We described it as a victory for the left, and there are now maps circulating about demonstrating the you know, overwhelming uh, volume of countries in South America that are now led by people who describe themselves as on the left. Is this part of a, a broader wave in that region? And specifically in Brazil, why does Lula's victory resonate so strongly for people? Well, uh, it resonates so strongly because he was once, you know, he was twice the president beforehand and his history and what he did for Brazil meant so much, especially for the poor. I really don't look at this win as a left versus right kind of paradigm like a lot of Americans do, because I don't think they see what's going on. This is more of a populist movement. And, and these countries want national sovereignty. They want the right to choose their own ways, their own laws and whatnot. So you know, I don't think this is more of like this broader left pink movement. I think it's more of a populist movement, a national sovereignty movement. So that's the way I look at this particular situation in Brazil. Were there were there major differences between the two candidates on those issues? Right. Doesn't um, doesn't I guess Bolsonaro's movement would sort of claim the same mantle would be my my understanding. What you know, what are the I guess what are the different flavors of the candidates in terms of national sovereignty, national identity, et cetera? Well, I mean, the results are almost, you know, 51, 49. So you can see the country is definitely split. And I mean, it, it's just, you know, I think this is more about the times rather than the ideology with it being the COVID protocols and what Bolsonaro had to had to do. And the fact that Lula could have won in his last election. I did get the sense when I was down in Brazil that a lot of the cultural issues kind of went in, in the favor of Bolsonaro where they where they, they liked uh, some of his positions, even when he said he was tough on crime. And there's a lot of uh, uh, workers, the working class has moved into a gig economy. Uh, there was a lot of Uber drivers, delivery drivers, but I think they were happy to at least have a job and as, as the COVID protocols were going on. But where Lula really succeeded was economically, and he su succeeded with the poorest of the poor. When we went to the favelas, they felt that Bolsonaro had abandoned them. And a lot of the landowners, the indigenous landowners, also felt with these labor groups that that's where Bolsonaro fell short, where Lula has always championed himself of the poor. And that was part of his whole campaign. He even said, I want every Brazilian to wake up every morning, have a cup of coffee, a breakfast and a roof over their heads. So I think that's where the two differences lied. And I think it just that's what played out in this election, that Brazil is, has so many people in, in poverty that that's why Lula won this race. Yeah, and unlike a lot of politicians who might claim to be uh, pushing a better populist economic message, uh, Lula actually had some receipts here. Obviously, his Bolsa Familia program was incredibly popular. And do you think that that was part of the, 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 the factor that militated in his favor here, that the poor people actually had experienced some benefits under him in his previous, um, under his previous leadership? Absolutely, Brie. When we went to the favelas, you know, the people, that's what they echoed, the old times of Lula when he was able to get them resources. I always say this, Lula's not a communist, but he was definitely a compromise between the capitalist and the communist, the way he would allocate resources to the poor of support. The only issue is that I think the left is glossing by some of his his old school kind of globalist ties. And that's what needs to be paid attention to moving forward. We understand that he's going to allocate to the poorest of poors. We just have to watch those other ties that, especially when it comes to the foreign policy with Haiti kind of coming up. So uh, th those are the reasons why Lula is back in power, but there are definitely concerns on the table. 
So what does the future hold for Bolsonaro? Obviously, this was a very, very, very narrow loss. Um, what, you know, what could he get back back into politics, be still in the mix for whenever the next election is? I, absolutely, that could happen. I mean, that's what I'm going to be watching. Like I said, he he overperformed. You know, with Lula's past and his approval ratings when he left office uh, and being a populist candidate that almost, you know, eradicated, you know, extreme poverty, Bolsonaro def, definitely did overperform in the situation. If you look at Lula's past, how he almost eradicated extreme poverty, very popular when he leave, left office. Uh, Bolsonaro, I would have thought, would have been a, a, you know, finished way further back. The fact that he did overperform, that could possibly mean a future for him. He can stay in the uh, in the light, you know, go out there and continue to campaign uh, for the next four years and then maybe have a shot of uh, taking back the presidency if Lula doesn't perform as, as he expects to. Thank you so much for that, Craig. We appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having me on, guys. And we'll have more Rising for you right after this. The red wave that's coming is going to be like the elevator doors opening up in The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I think. I think people are just like, what the f- are you saying you're, they're making Republicans? That was podcast giant Joe Rogan with his prediction for next week's midterm results, which are expected to be a referendum on the Biden presidency and the state of the economy. We'll get right into it. Joining us now to discuss is host of the Savvy Sabs podcast and co-host of Revolutionary Blackout Network, Sabrina Silvati, and former special assistant to President Biden and former White House press secretary for First Lady Jill Biden, Michael LaRosa. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good morning. I'll start with you, Michael. Is Joe Rogan right? Is this prediction accurate? Is this going to be a bloodbath, a red wave? And are Democrats, through their approach here, minting Republicans? I'd hate to be the one to say yes or no to a red wave. But like when I think of red waves, I think of like 1994 when Republicans unseated the sitting speaker of the House or Mm. 2010 when they took out two committee chairs um, who'd been serving for decades. I'm not I don't really know what polls he's he's looking at that says that because these Senate races are unusually tight. Republicans, in theory, should have put away some of these Senate races a long time ago. And I think where you see Democrats running strong in these Senate races um, in Ohio, in New Hampshire, in Georgia, the, re- the Republicans who are running for governor are completely outpolling the Republicans running for the Senate mm. by five to seven points. So something's going on, and I think it looks like, or I think it seems like what Mitch McConnell um, referred to as candidate quality. And you're seeing that in the polling. It's really hard to vote for people you don't like personally, and the Republican candidates running for the Senate um, have consistently higher personal disapprovals than their Democrat than the Democrats running. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I've said on the show a couple times that in some way the Democrats are lucky that in these key Senate races the Republicans seem to have candidates that are either too far right outside the norm or are just disliked for for whatever well, reason. And part of that is that they keep this addiction to Donald Trump and letting him crown their candidates in these primaries, yeah. a guy who lost the popular vote twice and just got killed with independence in 2020. And he's um, independents are really turned off by him and they are reminded every time they see him, that's why they voted against yeah. him. But Sabrina, you know, is that, well, that could be good short term news for the Democratic Party right now. It still doesn't speak well to their long term kind of uh, kind of planning or, or creating a coalition of people who are excited to vote for Democrats. I mean, what's what might 
if they do kind of limp over the finish line here, it's going to be very close either way. It's not going to be because, you know, de the Democratic candidates were really resonating with people, but they're just at the end of the day, even though they could vote for Brian, Brian Kemp or whoever it is, they, you know, they couldn't vote for Herschel Walker. Like, that's, is, is that actually good news for Democrats in the long term? I wouldn't be too sure. Um, I actually had a caller that called into my show last week. Uh, she's in Pennsylvania and she's African-American woman. And she said that she will be voting for Dr. Oz and she's voted Democrat in the past elections. And her concern is mainly the economic issues that have happened under the Joe Biden administration, under de Democrat leadership currently in this country. So I think this is what happens when the economic needs of the people are not being met by the current administration. So we saw this happen under Obama, right? 2016, it swung completely in the other direction, and that's how we got Donald Trump. So I think the Democratic Party has made a mistake here by focusing primarily on the cultural issues, which, for example, the overturn of Roe v. Wade, it's not as important to voters as they thought it would be. Most voters are focused on the economic situation that they have in this country right now and inflation. And I think the Democratic Party, if they don't find a way to really to really focus on that, I mean, we're getting close here and looking at the dates. If they don't find a way to really focus on that, they're not going to win this month. Yeah, Sabrina, it really does feel like when, when Joe Rogan says they're minting Republicans, I, I understand what he means because I have seen a lot of people and heard from a lot of people like your caller who have been lifelong Democrats and who are saying things that Democrats' failure to respond specifically to really top of mind issues, issues like the economy, issues like the war in Ukraine. We saw the, the Progressive Caucus really get slapped down for accommodating even a little bit of the majority of the majority opinion of 57% of Americans who are pushing, who want there to be more of a push toward peace in that region. And it does seem in some ways that it's not that the Democrats are talking about abortion, but there seems to be very little space to talk about almost anything else. And that is causing people to find weird, a, a weird alliance with the Republican Party that's never existed before. Does, does that resonate with you? It really does. It's interesting. I've actually spoken to Bernie Sanders supporters, and even some of them said they're voting Republican, uh, which is not what I recommended them to do. Yeah. I recommended them to leave the two-party system altogether. But even some of them have swung in that direction because it's not that they don't care about Roe v. Wade, but it's more so that people who are working class and people who are poor they're more concerned about how are they going to pay for groceries next month, if they're going to be able to afford gas to get to work. That is the number one issue for most of the voters in this country. So I think the Democratic Party, for a long time, they have focused on these cultural issues. This is how they sold Barack Obama to a lot of people. They said he could be the first black president. So-and-so can be the first black this, the first black that. And and at the same time, the voters' economic needs are not being met. So where that may have worked before in the past, I don't think it's working this time around. Hmm. Michael, you, you know, you were part of the administration, so not to put you on the on the spot. Yeah. But, um, you know, how much does this feedback, is that sinking in? Is that making its way to Joe Biden's ears? To Are, are they getting it that that they, they are losing um, a, a kind of working class support for, for economic reasons, maybe, maybe some crime reasons, maybe some education policy, a variety of things. Barack Obama gets it. He was on the campaign trail 
characterizing things in a way that I think had a really broad appeal. He talked about abortion, but it was maybe the third or fourth thing that he brought up in a sequence in his speech. He called out Republicans for not having a substantive pro program on the economy, despite winning that issue simply because of the power of not being in office and mm -hmm. thinking that people just want to change, of course, is the midstream. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Biden, uh, sorry, Obama seems to get it. Mm -hmm. Progressives have been calling out for a long time. Why mm -hmm. haven't we seen a kind of messaging more from the, the Biden administration that does seem to foreground the economy? Well, I, I think... Well, I, I would disagree. Obviously, I think it is sinking in. I think you're seeing it in wage hikes that are going up from employers who are attracting more more workers. The job market is the best it's been in decades. In August, uh, the prices for home ownership fell. Uh, I think for the first time, the fastest rate in 11 years. Um, I, I just don't buy that they're not that they're not. Um, that, it, that this is an economic, economic issue. I also don't know if that's always the case of the, the reason why people vote. Uh, you might be unhappy with the economy, but you, that doesn't mean you're going to vote for Dr. Oz. Uh, Hillary Clinton did actually win um, voters who said the economy was their most important um, priority in 2016. Uh, George Bush lost when unemployment was at a high back then of, of 6%. People don't always really vote their pocketbooks. They may tell you that. But uh, I don't do necessarily think, it think it's true. Well, what do I think? What is? I mean, but, so I, why why is it that why is it that in a race like the one between with um, uh, 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 Herschel Walker? Oh, sure. You know, I understand that typically the administration in power loses seats, and so there's a sure. way that it being competitive at all yeah. is a credit to the Democrats. It's very standard or, operating procedure. But also Herschel Walker being who he is, uh -huh. a man who. I wouldn't necessarily describe as especially knowledgeable or articulate and who has a yeah. lot of moral failings. Certainly and not scandal, scandal after free. scandal. Not scandal exactly. Free. Why is it so close if it's not about some of these uh, these other kinds of issues? What, to, what, is, what is driving well, the Georgia, some of Well, Georgia is basically the new Pennsylvania. I mean, I think Joe Biden was the first president to win Georgia since 1996. So it's still an incredibly divided state. Um, I don't. I don't remember the exact margin, but as you know, I think uh, we had a certain president say he just needed eleven thousand more votes in order to to win. Mm. So it is incredibly. When it comes to voter registration, there it's incredibly tight. It's divided. Um, I think that. I think the, the bigger story is that Warnock being an incumbent in a really bad year for Democrats is three points ahead of Herschel Walker. Mm. Um, I would say go back to Pennsylvania. If you look at the polling there. Uh, the entire uh, fall, the entire summer, Fetterman has led, I think, in every poll except one. Mm. It's the exact same climate as 2010. Pat Toomey trailed in one poll against Joe Sestak. And the spread John Fetterman has is greater than his. Yeah, but uh, 2010 wasn't yeah. exactly a banner year for Democrats. Exactly. That's my point. There's no way John Fetterman should be in a better position than Pat Toomey was to win. Well, according to a new Axios report, a coalition of progressive groups is launching a multi-million dollar ad campaign ahead of next week's midterms with the message, your fundamental freedoms belong to you. The quote, Protect Our Freedoms Coalition is focused on appealing to the swing voters and anti-Trump Republicans who voted Biden into office in 2020. They want to make clear that this election is not a referendum on the current president, but instead a choice between MAGA Republicans and Democrats. Sabi, what do you think about this choice? I think this is a bad idea. Uh, one of the things I noticed in that article is that they're not trying to unite swing voters over policy. They're trying to unite them over orange man bad. And mm. that's no different than what the Democrats are already doing. And it doesn't seem to be working for them, right? So how do you do that? Because we talk about the problems a lot, but I think it's important to also talk about 
the solutions. The way that you do that is through ballot initiatives in these states. So I live in a ballot initiative state. And one of the things that I have noticed is that when you have these these questions on the ballot, question one, two, three, four, and five, when you go to vote, you are focused solely on the question because it's not attached to a candidate. Therefore, it's not attached to a political party. So this is how we were able to pass like legalization of marijuana in Massachusetts because there was no candidate attached to it. And that was a policy that Democrats and Republicans approved of. Medicare for all is on the ballot this November in Massachusetts. Now, it's only for certain counties. Uh, the organization responsible for this feels it's best to start small and then see how it works. And if it does work well, then they can put it throughout the rest of the state. But a lot of these progressive policies have already been passed on, on the local level, right? So Bernie Sanders' wealth tax, that's on the ballot this November. This is the fastest way to implement those policies. And I wish this coalition was doing that, uniting those voters over policy and not so much orange man bad. What do you think about this message, well, Michael? I, I think that taking away a fundamental right for women to decide her own health care is actually policy. I think it reminds me a lot of 2012 when um, the Republican Congress tried to repeal Obamacare. People really don't like their rights taken away, and they showed that in 2012. Uh, the Supreme Court stepped in as well and said the same thing. Um, and I think that's what Democratic groups are trying to say here, is that why should a woman's reproductive rights be uh, different than in Pennsylvania than Ohio. That's policy. Yeah, I think I, 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 I agree and disagree with you, Sabi. On some level, I, I do agree that there's an overemphasis on abortion. I do think abortion has been shown as an issue to drive turnout, and the Democrats should stop talking about it. But it's the way it is being prioritized at times to the exclusion of other issues mm -hmm. that I think starts to hurt Democrats. Because it's great if you care about abortion, but any single issue it's probably not going to win you an election. Mm -hmm. And that's true of even the most important issues that we have in this country. But I think we have to leave it there. I really appreciate both of you for joining us today. This has been a great discussion. And we will have more rising for you right after this. Shanghai Disneyland has suspended operations due to COVID-19 and visitors have been directed to stay in the park until they can produce a negative COVID test. That's right, guests have been directed to quarantine inside Disneyland and yes, operators are keeping the rides running. <laughs> According to the BBC, this comes after Shanghai reported 10 locally transmitted cases on Saturday, just 10. You can see visitors in the shuttered park in those images. This new park rule is due to China's zero COVID policy, of course, which has placed millions of people in China under strict lockdown since 2020. According to the BBC, areas surrounding the park were also shut down, including a nearby shopping street. Videos posted on Chinese social media site Weibo reportedly showed people flocking to the park's gates after officials announced the closing. That's so, some horror, horrifying stuff, some dystopian uh, trapped in a park kind of nightmare. <laughs> trapped in an amusement park would be my nightmare. I don't like amusement parks very much. I mean, okay, your personal preferences for entertainment aside, Robbie, I mean... I, I'm a, I feel of two ways about this. Like I understand that any kind of kind of restriction of personal liberty is an issue to people. I do think that there's a way that this story has been overblown by other folks, though. 
Uh, it really? seems like most people are out by 8.30 p.m. Apparently, there was at least one person who said that they didn't get out by 10.30, but it seemed like that was a bit of an outlier. And 34,000 people were in the park. Nobody could leave without a negative COVID test. That's what the, the holdup was. The idea that they were able to administer 34,000 and had on hand 34,000 COVID tests to get those negative results, to, to get people out of there within a few hours is kind of extraordinary. So on one hand, I'm impressed by their administrative um, capabilities here and wonder how many deaths we could have averted if we had a better testing mechanism at the same time that I understand the critiques of a zero COVID policy. From day one, I have been all in favor of doing robust testing in the United States. You, would, you will never have heard me say a single negative word about testing. Um, because it is less it is less intrusive than other, in my view, than other mitigation efforts. So I have no problem with testing. Um, I, I do have a problem, and, and I find I take your point that of all the things China is doing to its population right now, keeping them in an amusement park for a few hours, my personal hell aside, is, is not the worst. <laughs> I was um, late in an airport for hours over the weekends. You yeah. know. Yeah, it, it happens. Um, China is also keeping people in their homes for you know citywide lockdowns. Um, some people, un, you know, people unable if you don't have enough supplies for the for the uh, for the lockdown, you're out of luck. Sometimes um, remember the drone flying overhead that said like control your soul's desire for freedom. This is some dystopian stuff, and uh, and over ten, over ten cases, over ten cases. Yeah, look. That is a that is. I mean, that's. I, I know they're committed. I know that there's a, a consensus among many in the United States that zero COVID is not a policy. Not just the United States. Elsewhere, virtually every every country. That other zero than China. COVID is not a policy that we'd want to pursue. Even people who are very gung ho about mandates, vaccine mandates, and mask mandates generally aren't interested in going as far as China. But I do think there's something to be said. Only time will tell whether that was the right choice when we start to look at the effects of long COVID and the large percentages of our population, which might be um, disabled going forward and unable to contribute to the economy. You know, there's a long game and the short game. And I do think that with a more authoritarian state, they're able to make different kinds of decisions that we, with the faster turning wheels of democracy, People don't make those kind of decisions. They're much more short-term decisions that are made for us in our political context. And so I do think we're going to have to wait to the longer term to see who actually went out but on does, But decision. doesn't that itself, in every political system where the people have some control over yeah. what the government's policies are, they have not opted for this. Uh, you can find island nations, many of them went harder for, they were more, it, it was more, easy, it was easier to do that for, they could control their immigration policies, et cetera. Um, they gave it a better go for that reason. Mm -hmm. But broadly speaking, representative democracies where governments are responsible to people, the, the will among the people is not for what China's doing. I don't know if the will in, within no, China is, but it doesn't matter because the Chinese government doesn't have to reflect the will of the people. Yeah, and, it, and it's worth knowing that despite China being, what, three times as big as the United States, they've experienced a tiny fraction of COVID deaths. Now, obviously, people can sit around and say they dispute the numbers, and there's nothing mm -hmm. you can do to change people's minds. But with the numbers that we have, it has been effective, a much more effective at preventing people from getting the disease, getting long COVID, and succumbing to the Completely disease. Completely shutting down society, shutting people in their homes for weeks and months and years has worked somewhat to control, substantially to control the Sub virus. Substantially. And prevent, substantially. Yeah. And, and that's right. I mean, I can decide what, what the pros and cons of that are, but sure. we don't have to lie about it not working. No, right, sure. it, I mean, it works. Sure. It works. It's just, are you willing to make that kind of sacrifice? And are you willing to do it for forever? <laughs> yeah. Because COVID is not going away. Yeah. Well, you know, there is an argument that if we had 
distributed more vaccines globally. Like part of the issue is that we live in a society and getting Americans vaccinated when the entire global South basically wasn't scheduled to get even get any, on any kind of vaccination schedule until 2023, 2024 um, meant that we were uh, kind of bailing out a lifeboat with a thimble. Uh, but here they have we are. Their own. China has their own vaccines. They they had their vaccine. Yeah, well, I don't than... consider China. I'm not thinking about China when I'm saying the global South. I'm saying the issue is that well, you... either you do a complete I you're shutdown. I saying we didn't share our vaccines enough and that's well we, we didn't but i'm not saying with china i'm saying yeah. the point is that if you accept the porosity of borders and the fact that you don't want to have a shutdown the way that china has had you are always going to get reinfections from other parts of the world that haven't had the benefit of having any kind of vaccine or protection against the virus so this is this is this weird kind of right, although we don't we still right today now. don't let people come to this country unless they're vaccinated and that's a different kind of restriction. Yeah. Well, it's a restriction I think it should be gotten rid of because the vaccine is not having a significant effect on spread at this point. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. Which is the other issue. Yeah. Well, you know, and on the grand scheme of things, I think that this is an interesting demonstration of what kind of capacity does exist if people are interested in doing a mass testing regime in a pretty quick amount of time. And I think a lesson could be learned from that, separate well, apart from the broader a desire yeah, for look, the mass now. test, if you separate it from the forcing people into their homes, right? I don't have any problem right, but we're with just the talking about this, this Disney yeah, incident the right now. Fine. The, yeah. the, in some ways, that could be. Now, the testing is not, is definitely not perfect. I mean, we know that from our own experience sure. and from people take a test, they're, they're feeling, they feel sick, they take a test, they're negative, they take another test later that day, they're negative, then maybe the next day they're positive. That, that seems to be what the What do you want them to do? Keep them people. in Disney if, uh, for 10 days? No, no, no. Absolutely. Obviously not. I wouldn't keep them in any of their positive and symptomatic, but it's, I'm, I'm saying it's not a perfect solution. Sure. It still gives people more information. And yeah, you can envision a world where people take a test every day or they take a test before they get on the train or something. Uh, I, I would prefer that, certainly prefer that to you have to be vaccinated and masked and quarantined and all of that um, if we had just reliable testing and then people could self-quarantine um, uh, or wear a very high-quality mask or something if they had to go out and they knew they were ill. That would absolutely be a better world, and that, would, and, and that doesn't uh, – we don't need to shut down society over that or, or do really intrusive things. So I, I, from the beginning, been all in favor well, Robbie of better says, testing. Robbie says, Biden, you need to send high-quality masks to every American and no, restart your free that. testing program. You heard it, you heard it here mm. first. <laughs> well, I'm rising for you right after this. President Biden reportedly lost his temper with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in a phone call earlier in the summer. According to reporting from NBC, Biden called Zelensky following his approval of an additional $1 billion in aid for Ukraine, but grew impatient after Zelensky pressed for more. The U.S. has funneled billions of dollars to Ukraine since the outset of its war with Russia, and there seems to be no signs of stopping anytime soon. Biden has, of course, signaled that the U.S. will aid the war-torn country indefinitely, as long as it takes. All told, Congress has allocated $65 billion for Ukraine since February. So this is interesting only to the extent that Biden got testy. Yeah, It's hard to even imagine. So, so here, here's, the, I think, the background that makes this so interesting. We've just come off of a week where 30 members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus issued a letter that uh, 100%. A paragraph after paragraph just validating Joe Biden and his approach to Ukraine, saying that we should send every penny, saying that they all voted for all of the aid packages and that it's all a very, very good idea, except for maybe 
at some point, the goal here should be peace. That's the only thing the letter said. In response to that letter, there was all of this blowback. Pramila Jayapal, leader of the caucus, issued a uh, clarification and then a complete and total retraction. And it's been basically blowing up ever since then. Okay, in the background of that, the accusations against the CPC letter have been that it's been anti-Biden, that any, 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 any uh, confines, any constraints at all on an unlimited blank check out the door to Ukraine is tantamount to saying, as someone just now has said to me on, on Twitter, to throwing Ukrainian children in a, in a river to be drowned, <laughs> right? Like that, that is the level of discourse that exists right now. And now we have reporting that Joe Biden himself, it seems offered some kind of pushback to Zelensky asking for more money after he had just received a billion dollars in aid. So who is who are the, these people defending? here who are criticizing this letter because Joe Biden himself. I'm heartened to know that Joe Biden even had the impulse to suggest <laughs> that maybe one day there will come some right. need to limit the funding of what Ukraine is doing. Not yeah. enough to change any policy or to, to publicly say anything yet. But even this was, we didn't know how he actually feels deep down about this. Uh, but you're right. It's exactly the same kind of careful caution. Is there a limit sentiment being expressed by those 30 members, uh, progressive Democratic members of Congress, that they were forced humiliatingly to withdraw, forced by mainstream pressures, pro-Ukrainian pressures coming from the media and kind of just the mainstream of the Democratic Party. But Biden himself shares that sentiment privately or did at one point express something like that, which you're not even which you're not even allowed to. I mean, the, the, yeah. the discourse is just so pro. I mean, why don't you share you? So you interviewed yeah, someone. So why don't I, you talk about that? I interviewed a guest who I really enjoyed having on my podcast earlier this year. He's an anti-nuclear proliferation expert, uh, Joe Cerencioni, um, formerly of the Plowshares Institute. He's a leftist. I believe he was an advisor to the Bernie uh, foreign policy camp. You know, a guy who I think of as having very similar um, ideals, but after the brouhaha of the letter broke, I saw him online defending the retraction of the letter and being very critical of the letter. So I invited him to come on my show so we could have a good faith conversation about how we ended up on opposite sides of this issue, despite, I thought, having very similar views about foreign policy and being anti-American imperialism and things going into it. And it's gotten me into some real hot water. I want to play a clip for you guys right now. If you really believed, like I do, and have been arguing for weeks, that Democrats are setting Tulsi up to make that exact argument. Okay. I can't be mad at Tulsi. Tulsi didn't say a single untrue thing <gasps> there. Are I'm you sorry. kidding me? It's one lie after the other. What are name, you talking about? Name a lie. Warmongers. Which... Warmongers. The Democratic Party is controlled Wait, by sorry. warmongers? We're leftists. We obviously know and believe that the Democratic Party is controlled by warmongers. We, the, the, the deep state knows no D or our party affiliation. Wait, this, this, is, this is like she not even, even a controversial the, statement. She even lies the whole point about of the why name we of love the party. Bernie Sanders. She calls it the Democrat I Party. I don't care. I'm not well, a Democrat. I don't care. So this, Amazing. Th this, Amazing. Is, this is where we are. I had just played the clip of Tulsi, I think, on, on um, uh, Tucker Carlson, making the point that Democrats have set her up to make that there is no room for any, even the tiniest bit of anti-war criticism or any conversation about what limits might be to Ukrainian aid or whether or not our aid should be contingent on peace negotiations, given the fact that we have reporting that um, uh, Boris Johnson intentionally tried to thwart those negotiations earlier this year, right? 
right? Despite the fact that we have all of this knowledge mm -hmm. now about America's involvement in the region and the coup in 2014, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, despite all of our fingers in these pots in various ways, well, the idea that the money should have any push well, towards And I watched that, that and, and the other clip where, where he sort of accuses you of like being okay with children dying with in Ukraine or something. And, yes. And uh, I, I mean, I don't think you're personally holding them underwater to drown, but it's something like that. And, but, and, he's, and you say that you don't accept that because, well, children are dying everywhere. There's all sorts of... Yes. And I think that just gets to such a fundamental point because... It would be different, from my view, from my point of view, it actually would be different if the administration would just say, look, we view Russia as an antagonistic nation and Ukraine, keeping Ukraine's integrity is a strategic priority of ours. So this isn't just like any other fight anywhere else. Yeah. From a real politics standpoint, we want Russia to lose and we want Ukraine to stand firm and, and better and we would fight them over this, but we, our soldiers don't even have to fight. Ukrainian soldiers are fighting and dying for this, so we'll continue to fund it because it's in our best interest, and you have to live with that. Yeah. That would be honest would if be they honest. said that, because that's their actual view. That's their actual that's view. That's their actual view. But they're not saying it. They're couching in this label of humanitarian concern, and oh no, it's so sad, and we have to... That's just to, just to admit the truth. Yeah, and, and let I, the American people know that and see if they agree with that strategic priority and then proceed. Yeah, then proceed with all the public will you have over a, it. 100%. I, again, from the beginning of this conflict, when I talked to Matt Duss on the podcast, who was Bernie's foreign policy advisor until recently, I didn't know much about the conflict at all. All I wanted to know is why Ukraine? Yep. Why the investment in Ukraine? And nobody has been able to answer that question because if they were to be honest, I mean, that's funny, it's interesting because in this interview, Joe does say some things about how, you know, we're not allowed to change people's borders. In Europe, he qualifies it as, a, as in Europe. And many people wrote in and called in to my call in last night saying, since when? Is this a policy? Since when? America has in, been involved in this kind of regime change, border change operation. They talked about the, the, the Gulf War and Kuwait. It, it's a new rule that's come up to justify an involvement here. What this really is is a continuation of Cold War, War policies where we don't want to see Russian economic dominance and we want to ha have that kind of control. We don't want a, a multipolar state. Right. I may or may not agree with that goal, but just be honest about that being the goal because that is the why Ukraine of it all. And don't then turn around and, and tell people who believe that the money is not being spent in a way that is, makes any sense given the economic climate back home, that they're being crazy or that they just don't care about Ukrainian lives and Ukrainian children, especially when Ukrainian people are being used as cannon fodder to prolong a conflict to weaken Russia instead of um, being targeted to actually win discreet goals that are driven by the self-determination of the people who live in Ukraine. Now, borders in Europe have changed constantly, uh, including recent, like, uh, like it's, in, it's not, there wasn't, there hasn't been a long period of- Yugoslavia, of, we, right. we did all that border, border finagling right. and it doesn't matter. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's all this post hoc rationalization. People can see through it, but at the end of the day, it's working on a big chunk of the population. We'll see if it has any effect here on Democrats' chances. They think, it's just, they think it's just the risk board and you're not going to get the five new troop deployments if you don't have all of Europe <laughs> under the green- of course, Robbie's going to make this about a board game somehow. Uh, <laughs> yes, that is my specialty. Tomorrow on Rising, reporter Lee Fong will join us to discuss his latest report. This really big uh, story on the Department of Homeland Security uh, putting pressure on social media companies to censor. I was just seeing that he was on uh, Tucker's yeah. show last night, and Aaron Rupar, who's this kind of liberal Twitter personality used to be a kind of enforcer for mainstream media orthodoxy tweeted a screenshot of it with like can you believe can you believe it is on Tucker how, how, like, how could they 
Why isn't he everywhere? <laughs> this isn't this a story of, of interest to yeah. liberals as well? Why isn't he on CNN and MSNBC as well? Well, he'll be on Rising tomorrow, so make sure that you follow us and, as always, like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts, and you can check us out on Roku and other streaming devices as well. Take care. See, See you tomorrow. tomorrow.